welcome. My name is Chad. I'm the senior pastor here at Sovereign Grace. We're glad you're with us. We'll be in Genesis chapter 2 this morning. We're glad that you're here this morning. You either have recently recovered from COVID or not yet gotten it again. So we're glad that you have made it. We have more and more people, I think, in the recently recovered category and for which we're thankful for because I think it's in its largely its second cycle through our community and our body in a big way. So we're thankful to have you with us. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start reading at verse 8. If you remember where we've gone so far, we began this narrative of the history of the heavens and the earth as told through Adam and Eve, or the first man and first woman. And we read about the creation of Adam. We'll look at Eve a bit later, actually in a couple of weeks, but this morning we look now at the garden that Adam has been put in, or the place where Adam has been, well, placed. There you go. (laughs) Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pashan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedulam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would cause us to receive this as what it is, the word of the Lord. We pray that we would, by your Spirit, hear what it is that the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, is saying to us. We recognize that you created us as a people to commune with you, to walk with you, to dwell with you in this place, our original abode, our original home, the Garden in Eden. We recognize that we have lost that home due to sin, due to our rebellion against you. We pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the churches, that as we look at your word, we'd understand it, and we'd be transformed by it. We pray for those who do not know your son who are here this morning, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. They might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you all know, Bakersfield is never spoken of with regard to its natural beauty. In fact, if you watch very many Hollywood movies, we're often the butt of jokes from the movie industry, particularly because it seems that everybody 
in California, travels through Bakersfield in the middle of July at some point, pulls off of the 99 in some janky gas station, stands out on the asphalt in 115 degrees and thinks, what fresh hell is this place? <laughs> and they never, ever want to come back. Who lives here? And why would they ever want to live here? And if you add to that the forest fires that we've experienced the last few years and the near apocalyptic skies where you feel like you're on some moon in a Star Wars movie, as you look up at the sky that goes on for a couple months, you wonder why anybody would ever be here. That's why we've gained the name the Armpit of California. Armpits aren't pretty, you all understand that? Yet, what's funny about that is when I return from a long trip, even a long trip to somewhere as beautiful as like the Central Coast or Maui or what, what have you, doesn't matter. I return from a long trip and I come over those mountains and I see Bakersfield, I'm comforted. It comforts me. It's home. Right? It's the place that I feel like I belong it's true of the house I've lived in for 13 years. It's that we've lived in that house. We've largely raised our kids in that house. And I feel at home in that house. I feel the same way about America. Not just my house and not just Bakersfield, but about America. You'll understand this if you ever take an international trip, particularly to somewhere unpleasant. But pretty much anywhere, I remember returning from one international trip in which I literally came through customs and got down and kissed the ground. Now, I was in India, and I nearly died. It was bad. I lost 40 pounds in about two and a half weeks of something. It was bad. So I was very happy to be back in America, as you might imagine. But I think we're all this way. I might be the only one in here who feels this way about Bakersfield. But I think you get the point. That's why it's deeply unsettling when we have to move somewhere else. We move away from the home we know. We move away from the city we know, the state we know. It's deeply unsettling. That's why it's also so unsettling when we watch America rapidly become something other than what we remember as our home. We all know America is in turmoil I don't care which side of the aisle that you're on politically. America has experienced quite a bit of turmoil in the last few years, and we all are unsettled by it. But folks, no matter how much we love our home here and now, it's not the home we were made for. It's a fallen and corrupted version of what the Lord originally made. And even at its best, even its best features and its brightest days are like a faint echo of our original home. So this morning what I want to do is look at and consider our original home. The home we were created for. And I want to consider what we lost what we lost in our original home, and what will be restored to us in the new heavens and the new earth. 
So to do that, I want to look first this morning at the home that we lost. We're going to look at the home that we lost, and really the entire passage of Genesis 2, 8 through 14 is laying out the home that we lost. And then second, I want to look at the home we will regain. If you will, we're going to look at paradise lost and paradise regained. And for those classics nerds among you, I will not be quoting from Milton. So let's look first at the home we lost, Genesis 2, verses 8 through 14. And I want to start with verse 8. And the first thing I want you to note is the general structure Verse 8 is like a summary statement, and then verse 9 through 14 really put flesh on that. It gives you the details of it. So let's look first at the summary statement in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now last week I said that man was created, or we were created, for communion with God. And when I, use, when I say man, I'm using it in a gender-inclusive sense. Mankind. Now, in the story, we're specifically focused on Adam, and we'll pick up Eve in a few weeks. But, but the point is, man, or mankind, was created for communion with God. Our nature as man is given for that very purpose. We were made as we are, body and soul, with a rational soul and true righteousness and holiness for communion with our triune Lord. That's what we were created for. Further, when God created us, he also created a dwelling place. Remember I told you he's not only creating a man, but he's creating a place for that man to live. And that's what we're looking at today. He created a home that is appropriate to us. And we're told some information about our original home in this summary. Notice what it says, our original home. And the Lord God planted a garden. So the first thing we hear about our original home is that it's a garden home. It's a home that has a garden. And notice the next detail, in Eden. So this garden is in this place called Eden. And what else do we learn? In the east. So... This garden in this place called Eden is in the east. Now let's consider those facts for a moment. Let's start with the phrase, in the east. In the east. East of what? See, that's the question. In the east. East of what? If I say it's in the east, you should be wondering, in relation to what? So for example, Taft is west of Bakersfield. Taft is west of Bakersfield, but it's east of Santa Maria. You guys following me so far? Okay. So when I say in the east, we're asking a question relative to where? Bakersfield is east of Taft. But we're west of Tehachapi. You see how this works? In the east. It's kind of a vague comment. East of where? Well, to whom is Moses writing this? You'll remember that I told you that Moses, as the author of Genesis, is writing to the nation of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt and in the wilderness headed toward the promised land. And he writes this book superintended by the Holy Spirit for the sake of God's people. And so when he references in the east, he's referencing east of the land of Israel. 
that sort of home base, if you will. And so in the east is east of the land of Israel. Where's that? Well, somewhere either in Mesopotamia of the day. Now, where's Mesopotamia? The things that would make up this region now would be countries like Iraq, Kuwait, Turkey, Syria. Some even think up all the way up into the mountains of Armenia. Or it could be a reference in the east, a bit south in Arabia. Here's the bottom line. We don't really know other than it's east of the land of Israel. That's what we know. We're not entirely certain after that. Further, we're told it's a garden. It's a garden. In other words, it's a, we're going to see a, in the details, a well-watered garden, an oasis. When you use garden in this way, he's referencing a kind of oasis, an oasis, a place teeming with life, a place filled with bountiful food and with beautiful ornamentation. It's this beautiful garden filled with food. Look at Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'm going to spend time on these two specific trees of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil next week. So I won't touch on them today. Today, what I want you to get at is this garden has every tree that is pleasant to sight, beauty, pleasant to the sight, and good for food, bounty. This place is beautiful and filled with bounty. It's, if you think of an oasis, if you're a person in a desert or a wilderness and you're thirsty, and you're hungry, and you're tired of what looks like Bakersfield, you see an oasis, this beautiful place that's well-watered, that's filled with bountiful food. That's the imagery here. And what you need to understand is, what's being gotten at is, God has put man in a place that's appropriate for man, where he might dwell with him, that has everything that fulfills the needs that man has. Look at Genesis 2.10. I want to talk about this well-watered garden. A river flowed out of Eden. Now note it's one river. It's a spring coming out of Eden. And then it's going to split. A river flowed out of Eden. This place called Eden, which has this garden, a river flows out of it to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pashon, like the gusher. It's just pouring out water. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Now the gold is an incidental. You need to pick that up. And the gold of that land is good. Bedulam and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, we're aware of the Tigris River and the Euphrates River today. We're not entirely certain which river is being referred to by Pashan and Gahan. What you need to understand is there's a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So the river comes from this place called Eden and waters the garden and becomes four rivers that sort of water the whole land. So it's this 
incredibly well-watered, bounteous, beautiful place. It's a garden home where God placed Adam. It's filled with beauty. It's gloriously shining forth with gold and precious stones. Did you pick that up? Now, where is this place? We don't know post-flood where this location actually is. Scholars have argued from somewhere in Arabia all the way up to the mountains in Armenia. But at the end of the day, everybody concludes we're not really sure. We're not really sure. But Moses is clear it's a real place. It's a real place, and it's geographically located, and it has rivers. And it's a mountain, which we'll look at in a minute. There's a mountain there, and there's a garden there, and it's in the east. It's east of Palestine. Now let's consider the name of the place. Notice what it's called. Verse 8 again, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. This is where the garden is, in Eden. What does the word Eden mean? Well, there are variations on how to fill out what this name Eden compromises, but at its most basic, it means delight. Eden is always mentioned in Scripture as a kind of, now I want you to hear this, Eden is always mentioned in Scripture as a kind of well-watered garden, an oasis, a place teeming with life, and a place filled with delight. So look at Isaiah 51. Keep your hand there. I'll show you a couple of locations of this. Look over at Isaiah 51. Now, I'm going to show you Isaiah 51 and Ezekiel 36, and I want you to know something about both of these passages. Both of these passages are going to refer to how Israel had rebelled against her Lord. And remember, when Israel was told in the Mosaic Covenant, in the law, the covenant given to Moses that was given to this national people as they lived in the land, they were told, if you obey me, I will bless you, and the land's going to flow with milk and honey, and you're going to be able to live there, and it's going to be amazing. If you disobey me, if you follow after false gods, if you continue to sin and walk in wickedness, then I will exile you from that land, and I'll put you in a desert or a wilderness place. A place, and a sort of tear down your temple and, and make the place a kind of den for jackals, the kind of place you don't want to live. And now when we get to Isaiah 51, and we'll look at Ezekiel 36 in a moment, both passages are about the restoration that's coming. God has, the people are now in, if you will, exile, and God is going to restore them. And look at how the language is. Look at Isaiah 51 and verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness, notice the language, like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. So what the Lord is doing is he's restoring her and he's taking her back to a place like Eden. This place of delight. This place that's like the garden of the Lord. Now continue. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. So to be in Eden is to be in this place of delight. This well-watered oasis where you're filled with joy and gladness, where you're filled with thanksgiving and song, and the Lord is going to restore them to that place. 
that language is being used because that's saying that's what our original home was like that we lost. That's what it was like. It was this place of joy and gladness and thanksgiving and song. It was well watered. It was beautiful. It was bountiful in what was provided for us. Now go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Look at this language again. Again, restoration of Israel in God's kindness toward her. This is actually speaking of the new covenant restoration, but we won't look at all that now. Just look at Ezekiel 36 and verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, hear that they have to be forgiven of their sins and cleansed of it, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled. Now there's a farming operation happening. Instead of being the desolation that was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste places and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. See, when a place is Edenic, if you will, when a place is rightly called Eden, it's because God has blessed that place. And it's a glorious dwelling place. It's a beautiful home filled with blessing. That's because Eden is the mountain where God dwells. Eden is the mountain where God dwells. Look at Ezekiel chapter 28. You're already in the book of Ezekiel chapter 36. Just look back a few chapters to chapter 28. There's going to be a lament over the king of Tyre. Now, there's a lot more to this passage than I have time to get into with regard to the way it reflects Adam and potentially Satan, but I'm not going to get into that now. It's a lament over the king of Tyre. I just want to look at the language that's used here. Notice what's being said to this Adamic figure. You were in Eden, verse 13, Ezekiel 28, verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. Notice you're in Eden, this place of delight, the garden of God, and both the place and you are sort of bedazzled with jewels and gold, and it's, it's glorious. On the day that you were created, they were prepared, verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. See, you, verse 13, were in Eden, the garden of God, on the holy mountain of God. Note the king of Tyre here is being described as if he were Adam in the garden, and there's a lot more to it, but I just want you to notice how beautiful this place is. And even Adam is adorned with jewels. And I want you to note that Eden is the holy mountain of God. It's not only has a garden, but it's referred to as the holy mountain of God. And God dwells there with Adam on that mountain. He dwells there with him on that mountain. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. 
There's more to this than I'm going to have time to talk about today. We'll look at it more. But I just want you to hear what was, if you will, normal to dwelling in the garden in Eden. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is after they've sinned. They are guilty and ashamed and afraid and hiding from God's presence. But God is walking in the garden with them. He's present in the garden. He dwells there with them. So I want you to imagine the picture now. Adam and Eve dwell on this mountain with the Lord. A mountain from which a river pours forth and waters the Garden of Eden splitting into four rivers. And that garden is filled with bountiful food to eat. And it's adorned with beautiful trees and glorious gold and jewels. And the name of this place is called Eden. It's the place of delight. Because God dwells there. Because God dwells there. God blesses it. God provides every good gift for his people there. It's glorious. And catch this because it's important to note there is no shortage of food there. There is no hunger there. There is no famine there. There is no poverty there. There's no one who's without. There's no lack. There's no pollution. There's no drought. There's no natural disaster there. There's no wilderness or desert or lack of beauty there. There's no danger from animals there. Adam's relation to the animals, they submit to him. There's no danger there from them. There is no sickness there. No pandemic there. No plagues there. No hospitals there. There are no broken marriages there. There are no rebellious children there. There is no wicked government there. There's no injustice, crime, or lack of peace there. Thus, there is no military. There are no police. There are no firefighters. There are no doctors. And by God's grace, there are no attorneys. There's no suffering there. There's no sin there. There's no death there. There are no sleepless nights there. There are no days riddled with anxiety there. Or filled with the dark clouds of depression there. There's no emptiness there. Or loneliness there. There's only the delightful, glorious, peaceful garden of God on the mountain where he dwells with us and we dwell with him. It sounds a lot like the place the Lord leads us to as our shepherd, doesn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or lack. He makes me lie down beside green pastures. He leads me beside Still waters. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That's our original home. And friends, that was all lost in the fall. Lost in the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, and we with them, we were no longer God's friends. We were his enemies. He was not our God, and we were not his people, and thus we could not dwell with him. So when Adam and Eve sin and become the enemies of God in their rebellion, God rejects them from the garden. He casts them out. Now, he does make a promise graciously to save them, which we'll look at. But first, I want you to see them being cast out. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, we're cast out. We need to understand the home that we lost. We understand it. This is the place that your soul longs for. You long for Eden. You long for the place where God dwells with you and you dwell with Him and there is nothing but His glorious presence with you. His blessing upon you. But you can't enter this place. You can't enter this place unless you're reconciled to God and God to you. So that leads to my second point, the home we will regain. That's the home we originally had and lost. Let's talk about the home we will regain. Throughout the Bible, we really see two strands, if you will, or two major strands of attempts to regain Eden. The attempts that man makes to regain it by building his own city and temple, if you will, and the attempt which is successful that God engages in, which is his promise and his purpose and his mission to save us and his son. So I want to look first at man's attempt to build his own Eden, if you will. His own home. He wants to build his own temple to dwell with, if you will, his idolatrous gods. He wants his own place of safety and peace and delight. A place that glorifies his own name. That's what we see with Cain's children. Look at Genesis 4 and verse 17. Cain knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch. Remember, Cain is the brother who kills Abel. The two sons of Adam and Eve. Righteous Abel is killed by wicked Cain. Cain knows his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, notice that, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. He's building a city of man. He's trying to if you will, reclaim what's been lost through his own efforts. We see it again, and now the outcome of this city is quite poor, but we'll, we'll look at that later. We see man's attempt again when there's a kind of new creation after the flood 
and they attempt to build another city and tower. Look at Genesis chapter 11, the famous story of the Tower of Babel, and look at verse 4. Here's what man will do. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make, so like a temple, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It's funny because they build a tower, it says, up to the heavens, and then you have this language that God has to condescend to come down and even see it, which is a bit of a mocking of it. But what I want you to understand is that man is continually in this project of trying to build his own city for his own name, for his own glory, in which in some way he thinks he's going to recapture what he's lost, this city of man. It's what we see with all the nations of the earth. Every nation of the earth is attempting to do the same as they plot against the Lord and against his anointed. Frankly, friends, it's what we want America to be. It's at least part of the reason most of us are chafing so much in the midst of the turmoil of our great nation. It's not the whole reason. Any people ought to chafe when their nation is in turmoil. That's not the whole reason, but it's at least a part of the reason. It's one of the reasons, not the only reason, that I'll hear some of us longing for red states, or at least an area of our state that's prettier than our own, or a home that's nicer than the one that we currently own. It's one of the reasons we long for some kind of fountain of youth and health regimens, plastic surgery. It's a reason we dream about some bygone golden age to which we want to return. Some age that actually never really existed. It can be a reason why we want to homeschool. A reason, not the only one. Or even why we're drawn to fundamentalism. What I mean by that is that we can dot every I and cross every T and answer every question with certainty so that we feel comfortable, safe. A reason. We want to be safe, peaceful, and without external threats. We want life to be that way. We ought to want life to be that way. It's not that desire that's a problem. It's the fact that we, by our own efforts, try to resolve that problem. We want to regain Eden on our own terms. And we see man's attempt to do that running through the biblical story. Through the Bible story is the regaining of Eden on our own terms. Second, you'll see God's gracious promise to restore his people to himself and thus to Eden. God's gracious promise, that runs through Scripture as well. God promises he will redeem his rebellious people and bring his rebellious people home. He promises he will do that in Genesis 3.15 first in that what we call the mother promise, that he's going to send the seed of the woman to conquer the seed of the serpent. He will send our Lord Jesus Christ to save us. He narrows the promise of that seed to Abraham's line. 
It's not just one who will be man sent by the Lord, but he's one who will be from the nation of Israel. He's one who will come from Abraham's line. Look at Genesis 17. Genesis 17. Because I want you to with me look at this central promise that runs throughout Scripture. It's the central promise because it is our great need. We need to be God's people. We need Him to be our God so that we might dwell with Him. Look at Genesis 17 as God speaks to Abraham and verse 7. Genesis 17 and verse 7. And I, this is the Lord speaking to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant. Here's the central promise you're going to see in every covenant. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Here it is, to be God to you and your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Now listen, and I will be their God. This is what we've lost. As a result of our sin, he is not our God, and we are not his people, and we may not dwell with him. And so God makes a promise to Adam that he will send the seed of the woman who will restore that. And that's narrowed with Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. You'll dwell in the land that I've given you. It's the central promise of all of Scripture. It's what we want to be restored, and we see it repeated in every covenant in the Bible. This is the promise that is made to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, it's made to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. It's repeated in Exodus 6 and a few other places, but we'll see it specifically made with them. Look at Leviticus 26, because it's more than one passage. I'll just take you to one for the sake of time. Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, chapter 26. Israel as God's people, this kingdom of priests are being told this. Look at Leviticus 26 and verse 11. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. That's the promise central to Abraham's covenant. That's the promise central to the Mosaic covenant. That's the promise central to the covenant with David. Look at 2 Samuel in chapter 7. 2 Samuel, God comes to David via Nathan, the prophet. And if you remember the story, David is the king of Israel. And God is making a promise to David that from his line will come a king who will sit on the throne forever, his own son. And then we read this in 2 Samuel 7, if you go down to verse 22 in the context of this covenant promise, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name? And doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you've redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. 
And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. See, you are God, and we are your people. It's a central promise of the new covenant. If you remember, because Israel had broken the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, because they had broken that covenant when God brought them out of Egypt, God made them a promise, I'll make a new covenant with you. He's relentlessly gracious to them because he promised to be. And so he promises a new covenant. Look at Jeremiah and chapter 31. Jeremiah and chapter 31. If you were looking at Isaiah and Ezekiel earlier, Jeremiah is between them. Jeremiah in chapter 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. My covenant they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is my covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Notice what it said in verse 33, I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He goes on in this new covenant document to talk about our dwelling. Look at chapter 32 of Jeremiah and go down to verse 37. Chapter 32 and verse 37. Behold... I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Hear the promise going all the way through? God created us as his people and him as our God that we might dwell with him in safety and peace and blessing. We lost that due to our rebellion and sin. We were kicked out of his dwelling place, no longer his people. And God promised graciously to send one, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, who would himself, if you will, cut the new covenant, be the new covenant, so that God might be our God and we might be his people and we would dwell with him. And that's the promise that's fulfilled in Christ. Christ comes and fulfills that promise. He takes us to be his people by saving us through his work, which I'll talk about in a minute, but I want you to hear that he takes us home. Look at John 14. John 14. And verse 1. Jesus speaking to his disciples the last week of his life, before his crucifixion, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to know how to get to Eden? Only this time in Eden better than the beginning because it can't be lost. The Eden that comes as a result of the resurrection, the Eden from which we can never fall or be banished again. You want to know how to get back there? You look to Christ in faith. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. You recognize the truth about yourself that you are in fact a sinner by nature and by choice. That you have rebelled against God. That you have attempted to make your own way. That you've sought hard, if you will, after Eden on your own. And that your attempts have failed miserably again and again. You know, we all know there's a longing for something greater something of which everything else is just a faint echo, and your soul is restless. And as I quoted Augustine last week, your soul will remain restless until you find your rest in him. You need salvation from your sins. If you're not someone trusting in Christ, I want you to understand this is why Jesus came. If you don't know him, understand that He came and lived the life that you failed to. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He lived holy, righteous, and undefiled. He kept the law in every regard, the one in which you rebelled against in your place. He went to the cross, and at the cross paid the penalty Due to you for your sin. He took God's justice for you. He rose from the dead. Conquering the grave that is your right end. The death due to you. He conquered it for you. He ascended to the right hand of the Father to rule and to reign. He presently rules and reigns. And is ever interceding. For you, And he sent the Holy Spirit to apply his work to you so that you would be forgiven of your sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and so that his righteous life would be credited to your account. So that he would free you from slavery to sin so that you might walk in newness of life. That's why Paul will say if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And heaven is our home. Heaven is our home. Sovereign grace, we are currently his. And he is ours. The new creation in Christ has begun. Thus we look forward to and long for the consummation of this new creation. For the return of Christ. When he will carry us home with him. Look at Revelation chapter 21, and we'll tie this bow here. Revelation chapter 21, and verse 1. Then I saw 
a new heavens and a new earth, for the old heavens and earth were fallen. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. We'll pick that up in a couple of weeks. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You guys hear the fulfillment, the consummation of all this? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So we're brought back to an even better Eden. Look at chapter 22 and verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What does John say to these things? He who testifies to these things, the Lord Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And John's response, amen. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Let me pray. Father, we pray that your spirit would apply the word of God to us, that we would give thanks that the original home that we lost, the one our souls long for, is restored to us in Christ even better than it was in the beginning. We know that is now ours, but we long for the consummation of it, for Christ to return so that we might dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth where there is no sin or death or curse, or sorrow. Where we see you face to face and dwell with you and you with us.
Make it so. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Amen.